0: And just like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast. It is Tuesday, sometime during the day, depending on when you listen. April 27th, the year of our Lord, 2011. It's a big day for a lot of people in the South. It's a very important day, very humbling day. I'm going to actually talk about that a little bit later on. But let's get to the happy stuff first. Happy to have you with me. Happy we can do this podcast a couple of times a week. It's all Q&A on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's all mailbag. And you can reach out with any college football question or any other question. Maybe or maybe I won't be able to answer them, but you can hit me with them. JoshPate706 at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram at LateKickJosh. We've got really good numbers on Instagram. I mean, I started that thing literally a month and a half ago, really. I started taking it seriously a month and a half ago. We're up over 3,000, and we really want to grow that one. I mean, that's the one. Twitter, obviously, that's a mainstay, but you want to follow the Instagram account because there's stuff on there that you won't get on Twitter, and there's stuff on the Instagram account you won't even be getting on the shows or on the podcast during the season. Just really, really good stuff. I can't wait to show you. I'd much rather show you than waste any more time telling you. So at Late Kick Josh, that's where you want to follow. And remember, I mean, we don't have an advertising budget. When I say this, I know since we work at CBS 24-7, you think we got a big advertising budget. Well, they do, but this show doesn't you are our advertising department. You are our marketing department. The entire success of this show really depends on and thrives on the word of mouth. You know, when you guys retweet stuff, when you guys talk about the show and your Instagram story, stuff like that, I try and share as many of them as I can. That's the biggest help. So that's what I appreciate the most. We got a loaded mailbag this morning. We're going to go a number of different directions and I don't really see any reason why we shouldn't dive in right now. So let's start it off. Chris says, I got a hot take for you. I want to hear your opinion. I live in Ohio in the middle of Big Ten country. I'm three hours from Columbus, hour and a half from Ann Arbor, about two hours from East Lansing. Is it just me or is the Big Ten quickly becoming what the ACC is currently in terms of having one team miles ahead of everyone else? Well, Chris, I think the short answer there is yes, it is that. In fact, I think the Big Ten this year and perhaps moving forward, we'll see, is more ACC then the ACC will be at this point moving forward. Now, obviously, what we're talking about here is the rise of Clemson in the ACC was great for Clemson. Um, There's an argument out there. You can tell me what you think about this, actually. Think along with me here. So do you think Clemson has been good or bad for the ACC? You can ask the same question about Alabama, but not necessarily because other teams have had success. In fact, other teams in the SEC have won championships in the midst of the Saban run. But there is nothing happening in the ACC, or hasn't been at least while Clemson has been on this run. So do you think it's been good for the ACC? Now, here's my answer. My answer is, yo. So I want to mix yes and no. It's been good for the conference's profile, I guess, because I don't think you've heard anyone say the ACC is the weakest conference in college football. They've said that about the Pac-12. Well, past the top, at various points, what's been the difference? Nothing past the top has been the difference. That's the answer. Clemson has been the face and then underneath, it's, it's really a bunch of nothing. It has been. Now, this year, I don't think it is anymore. In fact, I think you're starting to see in the ACC the longer-term ramifications of having a powerhouse. Initially, the powerhouse program can choke off the lifeblood of the rest of the conference. We've seen that with Clemson. I don't think that lasts forever, though. There's just an adjustment period. Now, in the SEC, they took football a lot more seriously, so the adjustment happened quicker. I mean, Nick Saban got to Alabama, won a title in 2009, The next year, Cam Newton won a title at Auburn. In the ACC, maybe it's taken a little bit longer, but if you look at what North Carolina's doing now, if you look at what Florida State's doing now, if you look at what Miami's doing right now, they're not ready, well, the latter two may not be ready to compete with Clemson yet. Maybe North Carolina is. I'm going to talk about them a lot more on Late Kick Live this Thursday. Maybe they are, but my point is, there is a response happening. There's a resurgence happening in the ACC and it's because everyone has their collective vision on one program. Well, in the Big Ten, they have that too. The only difference is they're not as far along. Ohio State is not as far along in choking out the life of the entire conference to the degree that Clemson did in the ACC. But I think it's on its way to happening. I mean, if you look around right now, which roster do you look at and say that roster is within a year, a year and a half of you know challenging Ohio State? I'm not saying they can't be beaten, but if we're talking about programs – There is no program remotely close right now. And I'm not really sure I look at any one up there and say they're on their way. Twofold are the reasons here. Number one is no one up there is recruiting at a top five level aside from Ohio State. And number two, Ohio State's not slowing down. If anything, they're widening the gap. So yeah, Chris, I do worry about that. I worry about that um, for the Big Ten, but I also worry about that just for the overall sport of college football. And again, I'm not one of these people who believes all these regulations need to be put in place to make sure big bad Ohio State or Alabama or Oklahoma or whoever, Clemson, that they don't run away. It's not, it's not a regulator's job. Like It's not college football's job collectively to make sure no one gets too good. It's your job. It's your job at Penn State. It's your job at Wisconsin. Clemson, it's your job at, um, well, not Clemson. They're doing a good job of that. It's your job at North Carolina. That's why I'm, I'm making such a point to emphasize North Carolina. They're answering the bell. Notice year one, Mac Brown walked in, and they had to play Clemson year one. They took him down to the wire. They were a two-point conversion away from beating Clemson. They never flinched. They, never, they, didn't have a, they didn't have a fraction of the roster. Talent-wise that Clemson did, they never flinched. And since then, what have they done? They've gotten better through recruiting. They don't care. They're not Clemson. They know they're not, but they're also understanding that they control it through proper hiring, through good recruiting, through good development, not taking shortcuts, and building things the right way. They control it. Just like Michigan controls Michigan. They control how wide that gap is. Ohio State, they're controlling themselves, and they don't even care about anyone else. Alabama, they control themselves. They don't even care about anyone else. It's up to you. LSU was able to do it in 2019. Auburn was able to do it for a little while. No one has been able to sustain it like Alabama has. We'll see if anyone's able to sustain it like Clemson has. We'll see if anyone's able to sustain it like Ohio State has. My point is they did it, and it wasn't the system. It wasn't the machine that's built in their favor. Let me tell you something. If you are Michigan, if you are Georgia, if you are Texas, I got news for you. Any machine that is built to benefit Ohio State or Alabama or Clemson, it's also built to benefit you. The difference is they've taken advantage of it, and you've dropped the ball completely to varying degrees. And so the question is not, well, is Ohio State bad for the sport? Is Alabama bad for the sport? I would ask the follow-up. I would ask, Is everyone else dropping the ball bad for the sport? And my answer would be yes. Hire correctly. Get the right AD in place. Get the right infrastructure in place. Don't try and do it in a microwave in 15 seconds. And crazy things can happen. Magical things can happen. Caleb is next up. With the tremendous work he's done to turn around Oklahoma's defense over the last couple of years, us Sooner fans are going to have to come to terms with the fact that Alex Grinch, defensive coordinator, is going to get some good head coaching offers in the coming years. If and when he leaves to be a head guy somewhere, there will be a major drop-off, or will there? Do you think that there will be a major drop-off, or do you think the much-improved culture has already been instilled in the program? And that's from Caleb. Caleb, I don't necessarily know. So let me, let me slow down a second. I think you're right. Just like Brent Venables at Clemson, I think you're right that the offers are going to be there. Now, here's what I don't know. I don't know what kind of guy Alex Grinch is in that sense, because Brent Venables is a guy, as we can clearly see now, he's still at Clemson, who did not jump at the first offer. You can just as easily from the same program look at guys like Chad Morris, who did jump when SMU came calling. They did jump. Uh, so it's to each his own. If Alex Grinch is what much more of a Chad Morris, then, yeah, he's going to be gone probably after this year. Um, Dan Lanning is another guy at Georgia who is in this boat. He's, he's got some offers probably coming his way. But here's the important thing to remember. Those guys, Dan Landing at Georgia or Alex Grinch at Oklahoma, they are coaching under very important people, not just because of who the names are, but think about what Kirby Smart represents and think about what Lincoln Riley represents. Think about what they have in common. Those are guys who are first-time head coaches at their current jobs. Uh, Lincoln Riley wasn't at Tulsa before he got that job. Kirby wasn't at Georgia State before he got that job. Their first head coaching jobs were perennial powerhouse, tier one caliber programs. Well, I wonder if Alex Grinch looks at that because there was a time where Lincoln Riley was a hotshot coordinator. I wonder if Dan Lanning looks at Smart because there was a time Kirby Smart was a hotshot coordinator and they were in demand and their first jobs were major jobs. And so now what do you do? If you're Alex Grinch, you're getting paid very handsomely. Brent Venables, same. You're being paid very handsomely. Brent Venables has already kind of answered this question. We got to get the answer from Grinch. Is he going to be a guy who just bides his time and he waits for the opportune position to come open, or is he a guy who's going to jump at the first offer that comes available? I don't know. It remains to be seen. But the second part of this question, is there going to be a huge drop-off? I'm not so sure I would expect a huge drop-off. Number one, because recruiting has as much to do with this as anything. They're recruiting really good defensive guys now, so the talent is not going to be lacking. And then the other thing is, now that people will have seen Oklahoma play defense, I believe they're going to do it this year at as high a level as they've done it, period, under Lincoln Riley. I think it's going to be a desirable job. So I think he's going to be able to go and cherry pick basically whoever he wants for that position and within reason, obviously. And I don't think, no, I'm thinking this out loud as I talk to you, Caleb. I don't think there's going to be a big dip there. I think Oklahoma is here to stay. And I think they're going to be this point, 2021 and moving forward. I think the product they put on the field will be a lot more synonymous with the kind of product you need to win a national championship, which is high caliber offense, Potent vertical passing game, really, really good future NFL caliber quarterback, but then also opportunistic defense. Big guys up front, they can collapse the pocket if they need to, they can rush the passer if they need to, long, athletic in the secondary. I'm not saying they're absolutely there yet. I'm saying expect a quantum leap forward defensively from them this year, and then that point moving forward. And as you develop that, and as you know, that's not a death sentence to go take that job as a defensive coordinator then it, it greatly reduces the likelihood that you're going to have some massive drop-off if and when a high-caliber guy leaves. Ooh, let's take a second. Let's breathe here. Jason asked simply, what are your memories from April 27th, 2011? That is 10 years ago today. Some of you, if you're listening in Sioux Falls, you have no clue what that date means. If you're listening in Alabaster, Alabama, you probably got PTSD just from hearing the numbers put together in that order. April 27th, 2011 was the biggest impact day in my life outside of 9-11. And what happened was a generational tornado outbreak across the South. I was there. You know my proclivity for storm chasing. I was right there in the middle of it. And a lot of other people unwillingly were in the middle of it. If you're fascinated in atmospheric science like I am, meteorology like I am, although I'm not a meteorologist, there is the outbreak in the early 30s. There's the outbreak, the super outbreak of 74. And then this one, 2011. I mean, it's pretty crazy how it seems like it's about a once in every 40-year occurrence. Uh, the damage was unimaginable across the South, especially Alabama. This is a day that fundamentally altered the South forever, and it really altered Alabama forever. Now, you know where I grew up. I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, which is right on the Chattahoochee River, so it 's right across from Alabama and so I have a really unique vantage point of Georgia and alabama, and it 's crazy what this day did. So the severe weather apparatus, as I like to call it, in the south it varies state to state in Georgia they're a lot more lackadaisical about it. In Alabama, they take it almost militaristically serious now, and it's because of April 27th. Now, there had been people who had been through big storms before, but I don't think there was as widespread an event as this one. Uh, we were we were chasing several tornadoes that day, uh, most notably an EF3 right there on the Georgia border. That was the one we were in, but this, this is the day that the big uh, EF4 tornado came through Tuscaloosa, stayed on the ground all the way through Birmingham. Wild scene, absolutely wild scene to see that many supercell tornadoes on the ground simultaneously. I was down in Alabama just last month chasing uh, another system that ended up busting that day, for us at least. But I went through the towns of Phil Campbell, Alabama and Hackleburg, Alabama. If you have a couple of seconds and you just want to see what I'm talking about, you pull up your YouTube machine and you type in Hackleburg, tornado damage. Hackleburg, Alabama tornado damage. That is about as extensive and as complete a destruction as you will ever see on planet Earth. That was one of the most powerful tornadoes, I believe, in the history of the country, right up there with the Guihin tornado back in the 70s. And so that's just stuff people in Alabama talk about a lot. There's a Wrangler Jeans plant that's right there on the highway coming through Hackleburg. I was down there last month. So we're 10 years removed, and here's what's crazy. There's still what is called ground scarring, which is visible from satellite. If you use Google Earth, you can see this stuff. The tracks of these tornadoes, 10 years later, you can still see on Google Earth. But what is most evident is when you drive through Hackleburg, you have vegetation. You know, it's not a huge city. You have a lot of vegetation. It's a highway. So you have dense, you know, pine forests and stuff. But then you come up on a place. It's not white to the ground. But what you see is all of a sudden, instead of the forest looking normal, every single tree is the exact same height. And they're, I don't know, 20, 30 feet off the ground by now, but they're the exact same height. What that is, is it's the place where that tornado came through. This was an EF5. This is the kind that rips asphalt up off the ground. And so everything was leveled. And so when things started to grow again, they all started to grow at the same time. All the trees started to grow at the same time. And you go by that Wrangler plant, which has since been rebuilt, but you see it in that video, and it's mangled. This is a huge plant. It looks like it's the size of a neighborhood, it's one of those massive plants. And it got completely and totally demolished. Really amazing helicopter footage. But I know some first responders who worked the scene in Tuscaloosa. I have never forgotten the impact this had on them. Now, I was not a first responder that day. I've done it before. I've done search and rescue before, but I have not done it that day. I I heard stories just beyond horrible, beyond imagination, stuff that for obvious reasons, I'm not going to share with you, just really bad stuff. Uh, If you've ever been there, if you've ever been, anywhere near a major tornado right after it happens. It's the most surreal environment on earth. Found myself uh, in that position on March 3rd, the previous two years combined, a couple of EF4 tornadoes. I was in them on the same date. One was in Beauregard, Alabama. One was here in Nashville. Here's what happens. You're there before first responders are there. You're there before the sirens are, are audible anywhere. There's no sound. It's totally quiet. There's no power. And so it's dark, there's, no, there's none of the usual sound, ambient sound like you would hear in a city, and you just hear people. That's all you hear. It's horrible. It's terrible. And so that was what was happening all across the state of Alabama that day. But I'll tell you what did end up happening, and it happened kind of recently down there too. Despite all the stuff you see on the news, despite all the stuff you see in headlines, despite the things that uh, those who control the fabled algorithms allow you to see on social media, what really happens is community is still the backbone of our country. And community is what's on full display anytime something like this happens. And it's out of the spotlight. It's long after the news cameras pack up and leave. You see people that will take the shirt off their back for you. You see people just come together. They lift themselves up. That's what happens. Nobody pays any mind to anyone's skin color, religious affiliation. No one cares. No one asks those questions before they help you. They just help you. And that's what happened all across the state, and people still remember it. To this day and long after this, they'll remember it. So, yeah, Jason, I have a lot of memories of that day. A lot of other people around the state were far more impacted than myself. I listened to Nick Saban talk about a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, leading into their spring game, about how that fundamentally altered his, his role, how he viewed his role in, in the state of Alabama, not just Alabama football. That took him from being, you know, just a football coach, at that point had been kind of a mercenary football coach, had never planted roots anywhere, uh, to that being the time that he and his family finally planted roots. And who knows, just strictly in terms of football, who knows what kind of impact that had just on the college football scene. But they did go on, they being Alabama, they did go on to win the national title. That's the year they played the game of the century with LSU, and they lost, and then they had the rematch uh, that absolutely should have happened. don't care what anyone says in the national title game. But yeah, Jason, that 10 years ago, man, crazy to think about. All right, let's move it on here. Let's transition. So Stacy, who is a frequent contributor to the program, she asked a question about the Pac-12 as it relates to the rest of the country. And there's been a lot of talk lately about who cares more about football and why this is this way and why that is that way. And I got a take on that. So we'll talk about that right after this. So Stacy said, I was listening to something recently where the main point of emphasis was that the Pac-12 just doesn't care as much about football and that's why they've fallen off and there's just more to do on the West Coast. So that's why the fans aren't engaged. Do you agree with this? All right, Stacey. So I've, I've kind of broached this before. This is one of the things that mildly annoys me. If you're a fan of college football, if you're a fan of sports, there are things you used to never care about that for whatever reason, a lot of you care about now, one of them is TV ratings. You used to never care how many people were watching a game. It's do I want to watch it? If the answer is yes, turn it on. If the answer is no, don't turn it on. But nowadays, everyone's fascinated with TV ratings, and no one understands how to properly interpret them, by the way. And then secondly, we're talking about this. I cannot tell you how many times I've had someone that wants to sound smarter than the rest of the room tell me, well, you know, Pac-12, they just don't care as much. You know, that's, it's just they don't football doesn't matter as much out there. Listen, maybe that's true, okay? I'll even grant you that. Let's say that's true. How does it stop you from winning? How does it stop you that you tell me there are more things to do in California than USC football? How does it stop you? Because I heard, I think it's probably the guys at The Athletic you're talking about that were having this conversation. And I heard Andy Staples make a great point. Now, I'm thoroughly ashamed of his recent pivot on the playoff stance, but I heard him make a great point. He said, really, there are beaches in California, are there? You're on the West Coast, you got the ocean, you got all sorts of things to do, huh? Let me ask you something did those things all pop up in the past 15 years? I knew where he was going. I smiled. I closed my eyes. I just slowly started to nod and I said, go, please go there. And he did. He said, Hey, I think I remember the Coliseum being jam packed when Pete Carroll's at Southern Cal, when Reggie Bush and Linert were there. I seem to remember it being really tough to get a ticket to the Coliseum. Were they, were the beaches under construction? What was happening? Were the Lakers not in l a yet What was happening? What was happening is they were given a viable product that's what was happening that's the difference, Stacy and anyone else listening that's the difference. The difference with maybe people in Columbia, South Carolina, and people in Los Angeles, California is they both are passionate about football. It is true that football per capita is more important to people in the South. I grew up down here, and I've been on the west coast. I know that we all we all basically understand that, but the fallacy is that you can't win out there because of that. That didn't stop Pete Carroll. That didn't stop Chip Kelly. That, it, that's a lie. That's every bit as much a lie as if someone at Texas or Tennessee tells you, well, the system's just keeping us down and benefiting Alabama. No, it's not. No, it's not. You're keeping you down. Alabama's just taking advantage. Oklahoma's taking advantage. And you guys have made terrible hiring decisions, and that's why you are where you are. Well, Southern Cal's the same way. Your stadium isn't 35% full 10 minutes before kickoff because everyone's at the beach. They're at the beach because they don't want to be at your stadium because you haven't given them enough reason to be. The beach was there in 2003. The beach was empty when Southern Cal was playing, and the reason is because they were the hottest ticket in town. The difference in the West Coast is, yet because there are more options, you do have to give people a reason, whereas the lights in the stadium being on is reason enough in the South. Is it an obstacle to overcome? That there's less passion per capita on the West Coast for college football? Sure it is. Is it insurmountable? No, it absolutely is not. You just got to get the job done. Like, let's just be real here for a second. If, if Clay Helton was knocking it out of the park, and they were entering the season number four in the country, and they had a Heisman Trophy contender, basically, let's just say they had Clemson's roster on their campus. Does anyone really think that that house would be 30 or 40% full? Does anyone really think that Southern Cal football would be an afterthought? I don't. I don't at all. And so, uh, you know, I always kind of exclude Oregon from this because Oregon's doing a good job up there. They're not necessarily in the Southern California scene that people really mean when they say West Coast. When you talk West Coast, you're not talking about the Oregonian coast or the Washington coast. You're talking about California and not even Northern California. You're talking about Southern California. And I understand that. Uh, so I, I go back to your question, Stacy. Yeah, I agree that there is more passion in the South. There's hey, I got news for you. There's more passion in California for NBA basketball than there is in the South. Okay. Uh, Does that stop the Atlanta Hawks from winning a title? No. There's more passion for hockey in Canada than there is Tampa Bay. Does that stop the lightning from winning a title? Uh, Obviously it didn't. So all of this is a very, very convenient excuse when the real answer is just get the job done and the results will take care of themselves. People will show up. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee right now. This is a hockey town. People here love hockey. Why do they love hockey? Well, because the hockey team is good. It's a well-run franchise. And so magically You give people something to buy into, they'll buy into it. And college football fits in Los Angeles, California, a lot further back dating than hockey does in Nashville. So something leads me to believe if Southern Cal gets their act together, I think the rest of this will magically take care of itself. David is next up. He says... I don't know if you believe that the G5 can't make the playoff. I know what your stance is on whether they should or shouldn't, but I'm looking at the 2021 Cincinnati football schedule, and I think this may be the team that, if they go undefeated, has the best chance out of any G5 so far to make it in. What say you? I agree with you. I agree with this. This is going to be independent of whether I believe they should be in. Okay, So let's table that, and let's just talk about what the committee would do. I'm going to read their schedule to you. And then you tell me, if you go undefeated against this, what do you think the odds are? They got Miami of Ohio. Then they got Murray State. Okay, here's the important part. They go to Indiana. Indiana was good last year. It's a Big Ten team. They'll be good again this year. Then they have a bye week. Then they go to Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a perennial playoff contender, perennial top ten team. Then they have their normal schedule. Temple, UCF, at Navy, at Tulane, Tulsa at USF, SMU at East Carolina. I'm going to tell you how this is going to set up. You will know by week 5. You'll cuz they are going to have to go undefeated and they will have played by week 5, they will have played at Indiana and at Notre Dame. If they win those two games from October 2nd on, we will be watching these games in the AAC every week and we will be circling them and saying, "All right, Cincinnati, let's see. They're uh, they're favored by 11 this week. They're favored by 16 this week." but they've already got the two most important wins under their belt. And if they run the table and if they go on to win their conference title, yes, I actually believe this probably is the best resume. Now, we're looking at right now, none of the games have been played. But if this ends up being a schedule they go undefeated against, they've got the two things that most people think they need. And that is a couple of wins over power five caliber opponents. Notre Dame's an independent, but you understand what I mean. Now, I'm going to ask the follow-up that you didn't ask there, Jason, but I'm going to ask the follow-up. And that is, what do I think about it? Well, I have no clue what I think about it. I never am able to answer these questions in a vacuum. This has a lot to do with what the rest of the country looks like. What the rest of the country looks like will determine what I think about this. I'm going to give Power 5 teams the benefit of the doubt because they've played a Power 5 conference schedule. But then again, we don't know what the AAC will look like this year. What if the AAC, and I have a sneaking suspicion this could happen, what if that conference this year were to look stronger than, say, the Pac-12, top to bottom? I mean, what if that were the case? And then you also add in wins at Indiana, at Notre Dame, and then you run the table in your conference. You know, what if, what if that's the case? Well, at that point, that'd be every bit the equivalent of someone like Southern Cal, let's say, going undefeated, or Oregon going undefeated and winning the Pac-12. So there's a, there's a possibility. I could be looking at Cincinnati come season's end and saying, I got to go against what I normally say. I think that they should be one of the four teams in the playoff that could absolutely happen. I don't box myself in with this stuff in April. That's very, very unwise. So yeah, I could easily see that happening. Good questions this morning. I got a lot more to get to, and you can also feed those questions to me at LateKickJosh on Instagram or Twitter, joshpate706 at gmail.com, and make sure you're following that Instagram and Twitter account. Got so much good stuff on the way. It's on the assembly line. It's in there right now. I can hear all the pieces being put together. It's about to roll out. You want to be there. Beat the rush. It's free no matter when, but beat the rush. All right, that about does it. Let's wrap it up. For Producer Jordan, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Late Kick Extra Podcast. Have a great rest of your day, and God bless.